everyone, this is Patrick Rao, Director of Strategy and Research for Natural Gas Intelligence, and welcome to another edition of our nascent Hub & Flow podcast series. Today, I'll be going over takeaways from the just-completed round of third quarter 2020 North American Natural Gas Industry Earnings Conference Calls. But before I dive in, I just wanted to note that NGI is a leading North American natural gas price reporting agency with roughly 170 price locations in the United States and Canada. We also cover the Mexico natural gas market via our NGI's Mexico Gas Price Index service that we launched in 2017. Just a few weeks ago, we celebrated the one-year anniversary of our LNG Insight product that is designed to help North American market participants make sense of the global LNG market. Finally, since this is a review of quarterly earnings calls, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that we provide a list of earnings conference call dates and times, as well as links to the investor relations websites, to more than 100 companies in the North American natural gas value chain. To access that, simply go to our website at www.naturalgas.com, and under the resource drop-down menu, select the earnings call sheet. Okay, I have a few higher-level takeaways today, but first, just a quick review of the current short-term natural gas market conditions in North America. So the U.S. continues to recover from the lower COVID-19-induced drilling and completion activity. The current Baker Hughes U.S. rig count is 312, up 28% from the low of 244 on August the 14th. And the most recent primary vision U.S. frac spread count stands at 130, up 189% from the recent nadir of 45 on May the 22nd. We believe that the relatively large increase in frac crews has been led by an effort to draw down drilled but uncompleted wells. Now, interestingly, at least five companies throughout the value chain noted that the recent increase in rigs and crews are being led by smaller and or private companies, so the rig and frac counts could have some extra upward momentum early next year once the publicly traded companies, whose activity has been less than maintenance levels of late, receive a fresh supply of annual CapEx dollars. So now that 2020 is almost over, the question is, will U.S. dry natural gas production be higher or lower next year? And that by itself is quite a statement, as this is really the first time since the shale revolution began in earnest in 2006 that folks believe U.S. gas production could decline year over year. So the prevailing wisdom seems to be that the massive falloff in the U.S. rig count this year will lead to a production decline next year, and that has certainly helped prop the 2021 Henry Hub's futures curve in recent weeks. In fact, the EIA projects U.S. dry gas production will fall by 2.3% next year, but we've seen a number of credible forecasts that have U.S. dry gas production actually increasing by as much as 3.5% next year. So why such a disparity? Well, in our view, the amount of drilling and completion activity next year really comes down to what prices look like in the early part of 2021, and that in turn boils down to three things. One, how cold a winter will have, two, what impacts will COVID-19 have on demand, and three, what will crude oil prices look like? On the supply side, Halliburton noted that North America needs roughly 200 frac crews just to support flat year-over-year -year oil and gas production, and that is well above the 130 that's in place in the United States today. But while the company said that they can see a path to reaching that 200 figure by mid-2021, we believe any lingering effects from COVID could push that into 2022. On the oil side of things, multiple analysts have noted that the U.S. is not likely to see a discernible increase in associated gas production unless WTI prices rise above $45 per barrel for a sustainable period of time. 
And that's right around where the Ford curves were for WTI as of this recording. Now, the OPEC Plus meets again to discuss its production targets here in early December, so no doubt lots of eyes are going to be focused on that. Okay, this first section here I've titled, Could the Hainesville Be Overtaking the Marcellus Utica as the Marginal Source of U.S. Dry Gas? Now, if U.S. associated gas production growth continues to be subdued, this would place a greater call on dry gas production. The two most prominent dry gas formations in the United States, of course, are the Marcellus Utica as one combined entity and the Hainesville. Appalachia producers are largely in maintenance mode these days. So if an associated gas production continues to slump, simple math suggests that the Hainesville would need to pick up the slack. But it's not just us saying that. Several notable consulting firms are calling for Hainesville production to rise anywhere from 1.5 to 2.5 BCF a day in 2021. And it appears companies are starting to scramble the jets to make that happen. BP specifically noted their intent to increase activity in the Hainesville next year, as have publicly traded pure play producers Comstock Resources and Goodrich Petroleum. Furthermore, at least two pressure pumping companies noted they recently entered the Hainesville for the first time, which is noteworthy since we believe the overpressured nature of that formation means there is something of a learning curve that new entrants must overcome. In other words, new companies aren't just going to enter the play unless there's an economic incentive for them to do so. Now, we note the rig count in the Hainesville has increased modestly from 32 in late August to 37 today, but we believe the real short-term production growth potential in the basin, especially related to the Appalachia, stems from its ducks count. The number of drilled but uncompleted wells in the Hainesville has grown from its low mark of 115 exiting 2016 to 320 in September 2020. By contrast, Appalachia ducks have fallen from 919 to an all-time low of 561 during that same time period. So yes, the Appalachia region still has more ducks on an absolute basis, but it's been clear that Hainesville producers have been saving up for a rainy day, and that day may in fact be here. Now, break-even costs in the Hainesville are slightly above those in the Marcellus, but that doesn't include any variable transportation costs to haul gas from the Appalachia to the Gulf of Mexico, which certainly helps to negate that difference. Furthermore, the Hainesville doesn't suffer from takeaway capacity bottlenecks that could cap growth in the Appalachia, which I'll discuss in a moment. And finally, the Hainesville has obvious locational advantages over the Appalachia in terms of Gulf of Mexico LNG exports, and we expect LNG exports to drive nearly two-thirds of U.S. demand gains through the end of this decade. Now, most third-party estimates we've seen still have the Appalachia outgrowing the Hainesville on an absolute basis through 2030, but we note that one is calling for both regions to grow by roughly six to seven bees a day each through then, which would be in sharp contrast to the large market share gains Appalachia production has enjoyed over the last decade plus. Now, regardless, we certainly expect much more noise to come out of the Hainesville on earnings calls in the quarters ahead. But will pipeline issues curtail Appalachia gas production growth? Now, note this question isn't about whether Appalachia gas production will decline over the next decade or so, and we don't expect that to happen, or at least to happen by any material amount, since there are still years of drilling activity in the region. But several of the Appalachia EMP companies note the core inventories in the area are drying up. And while that certainly may be the case, and it is inevitable, based on third-party data, 
We estimate there is still 12 to 15 years worth of drilling inventory in the region that is economic at $2.50 per MMBTU NYMEX. The current 10-year NYMEX Henry Hub strip, it's $2.60. And that 12 to 15-year figure assumes no future cost improvements via efficiency gains, which quite frankly is absurd. Yeah, efficiency gains will likely slow in the years ahead, but we aren't aware of any producers in North America who believe efficiency gains and structural cost improvements have maxed out. Now, there are other production benches in the Appalachia that can help fill the void, such as the Upper Marcellus, a formation that Cabot Oil and Gas plans to fully develop by the end of the decade. Producers would have to move up the cost curve by drilling higher cost formations to keep the pipes full if the core regions are exhausted, but the supply is certainly there to do so. So no, the question is, will there be enough takeaway gas in the basin to support meaningful gas production from the Appalachia going forward? Current dry gas production in the Appalachia is around 32 BCF a day, which accounts for roughly a third of U.S. natural gas production. However, pipeline takeaway capacity from the region is somewhere around 33 to 34 Bs a day. So obviously, it's a pretty tight squeeze there today. Now, Range Resources noted on its third quarter call that excluding Mountain Valley Pipeline, there's still about three to four Bs a day of takeaway capacity and in-basin demand coming that could support local production growth. But we believe anything over and above that amount would really have to be driven by new pipeline capacity, and therein lies the rub. Getting pipeline permits in the mid-Atlantic and Northeast is already hard enough. I'll discuss here in a moment shortly that could become even more problematic under the Biden administration. Getting Mountain Valley Pipeline in service is likely the key to future Appalachian gas growth, above that aforementioned 3 to 4 BCF a day, not only because that would provide another 2 Bs a day of capacity, but also because it could influence the fate of other proposed projects, such as the 1.1 BCF a day Penn East Pipeline and National Fuel Gas's proposed 490 MMCF a day Northern Access project. Equitrans Midstream recorded in its earnings call that it has now pushed its expected in-service date for MVP from early first quarter 2021 to the second half of the year, and the pipeline faces more potential litigation and delays in the months ahead. So look, if for whatever reason MVP isn't placed into service, that would likely create a larger call for gas from the Haynesville and Permian, and perhaps even the Eagleford as well. Therefore, completing MVP will obviously have implications on basis differentials out of the Appalachia, and we don't think it's hyperbole to say it has major ramifications for forward curves out of Texas and Louisiana as well. Okay, moving on to more thematic topics now. There's usually a dominant issue during or two during quarterly calls, and you know, this time it was consolidation. In fact, we listened to or read transcripts from more than 80 conference calls this quarter. And there were few, if any, companies that weren't asked about M&A activity. Now, there's obviously been a rash of upstream deals in the last few weeks, most notably Chevron Noble, Pioneer Parsley, Conoco, Aconcho, and maybe they merged this because their names sound so similar. You had Devon WPX, and then, of course, Southwestern Energy and Montage Resources. I mean, look, consolidation is a natural part of most industries as they reach their more mature stage especially for the commodity industry, because commodity producers tend to be price takers. As such, controlling costs are paramount. And indeed, many companies putting to increasing scale as the main motivation behind the latest round of merger talks. 
Having scale could also help better deploy technology and better promote ESG initiatives, which are certainly high in the minds of investors these days. Now, one theory that was bandied about fairly prominently was a notion that North American oil and gas producers need to have a market cap greater than $10 billion in order to be, quote, investable, unquote, and to be large enough to demand the attention of oil field service providers. Now, obviously, the majors all have market caps in excess of $10 billion, but here's the list of all U.S.-based independent EMPs who can claim the same. ConocoPhillips, Oxy, Pioneer Resources, Hess, and EOG resources. That's it. So either the M&A market really has to get going here, or maybe, you know, just maybe, this is a bit too high of a benchmark. And as one management from one smaller size yet highly visible Permian-focused EMP company said, quote, there is not a single service company that's calling us up and saying, hey, you know, you're not big enough, we're not going to be able to do business with you, unquote. The latest round of M&A activity in the North American natural gas patch seems to have been fueled by the willingness to accept a low acquisition premium or by companies in financial dire straits. But while the veritable merger floodgates have opened, at what pace they continue will likely be determined by the shape of balance sheets in our industry. There aren't too many companies, or at least public ones at any rate, that are willing to lever up their balance sheets these days, either by issuing debt to acquire a company or by assuming a massive debt load from the target firm. Still, we do anticipate more consolidation in the months ahead, primarily in the upstream, midstream, and oil field service industries, and we don't expect much intervention on the part of U.S. antitrust regulators. This next section I've entitled, A More Detailed Discussion About U.S. Oil and Gas Pipelines, but in parentheses I've worked in, and a sneaky way to work in the impacts of a Biden presidency. But first, just quickly back to that last point about antitrust approval, we note that midstream companies may be required to sell some assets if the merged companies overlap part of their service territories, but certainly there's a precedent for that in the United States, and we don't anticipate that being any sort of major speed bump that may slow the merger process. Now, one potential benefit that consolidation among the midstream names could offer, other than, of course, pure financial synergies, is that it may lead to more efficient use of the infrastructure, especially on the gathering and processing side. Now, in response to a widely asked question, midstream companies don't seem all that concerned about the impacts of consolidation among producers may bring, believing those mergers will increase the financial strength of the remaining customer base. But a few did concede, though, that having fewer customers would likely have some impact on the revenues and potential pricing power that they have. Also having an impact on midstream companies will be President-elect Biden's new energy policy. And my colleagues Kevin Dodd and Andrew Baker recorded an excellent podcast last week on what the Biden presidency may mean to the U.S. natural gas sector. If you haven't listened to that, I'd urge you to do so. And you can find it on the same platform you use to access this podcast. For midstream companies, we believe Biden's planned initiatives will be a headwind for the gathering and processing sector, but will likely increase the value of the interstate pipeline grid. We think Biden will likely curtail development on federal lands, either by banning fracking or much more realistically by issuing fewer drilling permits on government acreage. And fewer could even be none. Furthermore, if Biden repeals the intangible drilling cost tax credit for producers, that will leave them with even less cash flow to dedicate to drilling, everything else being equal. On the other hand, a Biden presidency could also make it that much more difficult to get permits for new pipelines, which of course would increase the value of existing ones. 
so too might a corporate tax increase, since that not only could raise the base rate and allowed return on capital for regulated interstate pipelines, but also would raise the value of the tax shield provided by master limited partnerships, a vehicle within which many U.S. interstate pipelines are housed. So one last point about midstream is that the investment community is growing increasingly concerned about oil and gas pipeline terminal value, or whether they'll be able to generate cash flows for the entire expected lives of those assets in light of the longer-term energy transition. Now, this will certainly vary for each individual company, but several potential factors should help mitigate this risk for the group as a whole. And those are, one, obviously the more and longer take-or-pay contracts are in place, the better. Two is that gas pipelines in particular will be needed to backstop renewables, and pipelines could alter their tariffs to accommodate that. Companies can potentially optimize their oil and gas pipes by changing direction or even converting them, say, to liquids or to another product. And longer term, there could be an opportunity for pipelines to transport hydrogen. And nearly all the long-haul gas pipeline companies have started discussing this. And this, of course, was a very popular topic this quarter. Now, it's still very much in the early innings of this process, and this likely wouldn't become more ubiquitous for another decade or two, but most midstream companies said they are intrigued by the possibilities. Not energy transfer, however. The company noted accommodating hydrogen simply won't be easy, since hydrogen poses some significant challenges for pipelines, not the least of which is that hydrogen is highly corrosive on steel. The other issue is the cost. Energy transfer management noted that blue hydrogen is roughly three times as costly as methane. And for green hydrogen, it's more like eight times as expensive. Now, for them, hydrogen is also likely an opportunity cost since they have a nice little slate of NGL projects to fund. But unless the economics improve materially, energy transfer has no real intention to enter the hydrogen space. But others certainly will continue to update their plans in the quarter ahead, and we will be listening. And oh, by the way, since we're on that subject, I should also note that uh, the topic of renewable natural gas is getting momentum, and that is something that is more readily acceptable by the current gas infrastructure. It's still just a speck on the radar in terms of overall U.S. natural gas supply mix, but we expect it will continue to grow in more meaningful quantities in the year ahead. So my last topic for the day is that EOG Resources announced a potentially major new dry gas play in South Texas. It's called the Dorado, and it's a stacked play between the Austin Shock and Eagleford Shale in Webb County, Texas. EOG estimates that there is 21 trillion cubic feet of net gas potential here. And at a break-even price of roughly $1.25 per MCFE, it would be one of the lowest-cost dry gas plays in North America. Now, look, I mean, the industry still has recent bad memories about the last highly touted gas he played in Texas, which was Apache's disappointing Alpine High discovery in West Texas. However, EOJ already has 17 Dorado wells with operating history, leading to confidence among Wall Street that the formation indeed has legs. Now, our quick thoughts here are, one, Dorado creates a source of Texas gas that is not tied to the price of crude oil, and two, it also provides that much more potential gas supply for Mexico in particular, given its location. And that could really come in handy if the country adds several new LNG export projects, which is a great segue to this last bullet point, since Sempra reached positive FID on their 2.4 million tons per annum Energia Costa Azul project just the other day. And that could eventually take as much as 500 MMCF day of gas out of the Permian. So in theory, Increased production from South Texas could allow some gas to flow west from West Texas instead of east towards Katy and Agua Dulce, 
and that could impact basis differentials between those two regions. So that's all I have for today, but you may be wondering, okay, what about US LNG? I've actually recorded a separate short podcast about our third quarter 2020 earnings conference call takeaways on that subject, which you can find on the same platform you used to download this one. So we'd encourage you to give that a listen as well. On behalf of everyone at Natural Gas Intelligence, I'd like to thank you for your time today. If you're in the United States, we wish you a very happy Thanksgiving, but wherever you are, we hope you stay safe. Until next time, take care and be well, everyone.